0: Let's all uh, go ahead and you find a seat and we'll have a word of prayer. All right, the Lord be with you. Let us pray. Father, we ask that you would come and be with us, that you'd send your Holy Spirit to enlighten our our minds so that we could know you more, that you would soften our hearts so that we could receive what you'd have for us this morning, that you open our ears so that we could hear you speak to us. We pray most of all that everything that you say uh, to us here would encourage our hearts so that we might offer. Up an offering of sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving as we move from here uh, to our liturgy and to our worship, we ask that all of our lives would be an offering of worship unto you, in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Amen. So welcome to our, uh, our our catechism class. This is the fifth Sunday for us in covering the sacraments, the Christian sacraments. It's the second Sunday in covering the Eucharist. All right. So last week we covered the Eucharistic liturgy that we, have, uh, that we use on Sunday. So Father Michael was here, and he walked us through uh, the liturgy. And, and I think it's incredibly important uh, that we did that, because I think it's incredibly important that we situate all of our theology, especially our theology of the Eucharist, within the context of worship. All right? I mean, there's Anglicans, and I know you have probably tired of us saying this over and over again, but if you want to know what we believe, come worship with us. This is where you will see what we believe is in our worship, and it's, it's embedded in our liturgy. And the way we do theology is then from our worship, right? We have a book of common prayer, right? This is where you would come to, where do you want to know what we believe? Go look at the book of prayer, right? Our praying is our believing, all right? So our theology is never abstracted from our worship or from our lives, but everything we believe flows from and returns to God in an act of praise and thanksgiving. And of course, this is, as I said, most true with the Eucharist, which is the source and summit of our faith, right? The Eucharist is the source and summit of our faith. It is that from which everything flows and the very heights to which we rise with God. Now, a very basic question is why the Eucharist, right? I don't know if you've ever really thought about this before, but why? Why do we have the Eucharist on Sunday mornings? Or you can also, with this, ask, well, then why did Christ institute the sacrament of Holy Communion? This is the question, actually, that the Catechism of the Anglican Church in North America asks. It asks this question in its catechism, and it responds by saying, "...Christ instituted the Eucharist for the continual remembrance of the sacrifice of his atoning death and to convey the benefits of that sacrifice to us." And so in this answer, you can see three different parts to it, all right? So first, we can ask, what does it mean that the Eucharist is a continual remembrance? of the sacrifice of Christ's atoning death. We could ask, what does Jesus mean when he says, do this in remembrance of me, all right? This first question has to do with remembrance. What is this remembrance that the Eucharist is? Secondly, if Christ instituted the Eucharist as a continual remembrance of his sacrifice of his atoning death on the cross, then what is the relationship between the Eucharist and this sacrifice of Christ on the cross? How do these two things relate to one another? Is the Eucharist a meal? Is the Eucharist a sacrifice? Is it both? Is it a sacrament of the table, the Lord's Supper? Is it a sacrament of the altar, or is it both? Lastly, you'll see in that answer from the Catechism, uh, that if Christ instituted, the Euchar- that the Christ instituted the Eucharist to convey the benefits of his sacrifice to us. So he gives us the Eucharist so that we might have the benefits or the grace of his atoning death to us. Of course, we receive that from him in manifold ways. <laughs> we might say principally or especially in the Eucharist, we receive these benefits of the cross. Also, you've heard us talk about how the sacraments themselves are visible signs of inward and spiritual graces, right? So then this, when talking about the benefits of the Eucharist, what we're talking about are what are those inward and spiritual graces that we receive from the Eucharist. Does this make sense? What are the inward and spiritual graces that we receive when we receive the Eucharist? But before we get to those three questions, let's just for a minute just talk about the visible signs of the Eucharist. Right? What are the visible signs? This is sort of maybe an obvious thing, uh, uh, but let's, it's important to, to sort of we for us to say this because I've mentioned before I had a, a, a youth pastor one time uh, want to distribute the Eucharist with Doritos and Mountain Dew, right? As sort of a way of being relevant to, to high school students. Is this the Eucharist? Right? That's, a, I think, the question, right? Well, the visible signs of the Eucharist, and we see this in all the synoptic gospels, Swithia's in Scripture, as well as St. Paul uh, quoting, you notice, that to the Corinthians in First Corinthians, Paul quotes the Eucharistic liturgy to the Corinthians. This is interesting. There's already, if you will, a Eucharistic prayer that the church is using, and he quotes this prayer to the Corinthians, and, and in it, uh, he, 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 he gives what are the visible signs of the Eucharist, right? The visible signs of the Eucharist are bread and wine, specifically wheat wheat bread and grape wine. It doesn't matter if the bread is unleavened or leavened. The West has historically used unleavened bread, while the East, whether Eastern Orthodox or Eastern Catholic, has historically used uh, leavened bread. For them, they they speak of leavened bread as representing sort of the resurrected Christ, right? Receiving the resurrected Christ. But of course, whether it's leavened bread or unleavened bread, both are in fact bread. And then you may ask about the wine. What about uh, something like grape juice? It's important to say that all Christians everywhere, East, West, Protestant and Catholic, have used grape wine as the visible sign of the Eucharist until the 19th century, the late 19th century. In fact, grape juice was never even a possibility until Thomas Welch, the founder of Welch's grape juice, invented a new pasteurization technique to stop the natural fermentation process of grapes, which of course ferment quite quickly. And so there's not much time, naturally speaking, for for you to even have something like grape juice, right? And so prior to the late 19th century, grape juice communion was just non-existent. As part of the prohibitionist movement, Mr. Welch began to offer, seriously here, quote, Mr. Welch's non-fermented wine. And he would offer this to local congregations as a non-alcoholic alternative. And obviously this caught on during the time of prohibition, and many denominations still use it today. Anglicans have never done this. Um, Catholics and Eastern Orthodox actually don't allow it because they don't see grape juice as being wine. I mean, they think it's, it's, you know, it's not fermented, whereas leavened bread is, is, is still bread. Um, as far as I know, Anglicans don't take a strong, a very, I mean, while they use wine, they haven't taken a strong position on, on whether it's you know, grape juice, it doesn't really count. Okay, so I'm not gonna get into that uh, here for us, all right? Um, but along with the bread and the wine, Um, the Eucharistic prayer is also part of the visible sign, right? I think this is also important. So you have the materiality of bread and wine, but you also have this prayer, right? These words uh, that are spoken uh, over the bread and the wine, and they're the words of Christ, and it's a a calling down, or if you will, an an asking of the Holy Spirit to come. So what, what we have in the Eucharistic prayer are the words of institution. These are the words of Jesus at the Last Supper, where he says, quote, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This cup, the cup, is the new covenant of my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. You'll hear these very words uh, in just a bit in our own liturgy. And then there's the epiclesis. The epiclesis is the calling down or the request of the Holy Spirit to come upon the gifts so that they might be sanctified, thus making them the body and blood of Christ. And so in our Eucharistic prayer, we pray, sanctify these gifts by your Holy Spirit to be for your people the body and blood of your Son, the holy food and drink of new and underneath life in him. All right, so these words of institution, this epiclesis, are included in what we might call the visible signs of the Eucharist. All right, so now let's then ask, uh, with the words of institution, do this in remembrance of me, how are we to understand this remembrance? All right, how are we to understand remembrance? Our liturgy also uses the language of memorial, saying we celebrate the memorial, of our redemption. In this sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving, we offer you these gifts. So what is the biblical understanding of memorial? Last week during the Q&A, there was a question actually on this very thing. Wondering why some of our Christian brothers and sisters view the Eucharist as a memorial, or the language was only a memorial, or a mere memorial. It's important to point out that our liturgy also sees the Eucharist as a memorial, The difference is simply that we have probably a different understanding of what memorial is, what we mean by that word, right? And so what do we mean when we say the Eucharist is a memorial? And this is rooted in how Scripture understands what a memorial is. Another aspect, before we sort of jump in even there, I think a challenge we face is that in the modern world, both memorial and remembrance have to do with memory, and i'm not sure we think of memory in the same way that a first century jew would have thought of memory for us memory is fairly mechanistic if you will our analogy for memory is something like a computer or a machine right that remembers like data for us and then recalls this data or information recalls sort of just the facts right and then reminds us of these facts right then puts them to use right but this is not how someone in the ancient world would have understood memory really at all memory for them would have been in fact a sort of Uh, participation or sort of a recalling of events in the present in in such a way that you transcend time itself almost. I mean, that, that somehow the past and the present are somehow connected in one event simultaneously, right? In a certain sense, memory is a kind of participation in eternity while yet remaining in time. Augustine compares memory to the fatherhood of God because memory is a place where we return to the origin Conversely, to lack memory, then, is to lack an origin, or at least to forget that one has an origin. Modernity, by the way, constitutes itself over and against the pre-modern past. To be modern is to be essentially self-originating. As such, to be modern is to suffer from a kind of intentional amnesia, a forgetting of our origins, and that we are originated. So it's not an accident, and many theologians and philosophers have pointed this out, that the modern death of memory has gone hand-in-hand with the death of God who is the origin of all things. If memory is a sort of forgetting of our origins, that you have an origin, this sort of transcending of time, and if God himself is our origin, then if you lose your memory, then you lose God, in a way, or in vice versa. So let's look at Scripture. Throughout the Old Testament, we see the people of God setting up memorials, these places which mark the great acts of God in history, such as Jacob at Bethel or the Israelites crossing the Jordan. Creating and returning to these memorials was not merely recollecting events of the past, but rather they were the proclamation of the mighty works of God done for his people. In the liturgical celebrations of these events, they became in a certain way present and real. So these past events were somehow made present and real through the liturgical celebration of them. This is most clear in the Passover, right? In the Passover we see this, very clearly. And this is how Israel understands its liberation from Egypt. Every time Passover is celebrated, the Exodus events are made present to the memory of believers so that they might conform their lives to them and in a certain sense participate in them again. This is why, if you've ever participated in or or read sort of the Seder meal liturgy, you notice that they use the first person plural, right? We and us. As if sort of like, we're there, in those events, we were there, you know, participate, you know, as if sort of somehow, even though we are thousands of years later, somehow these events are liturgically connected, right? And so, this memorial of the Passover for the Jews is a participation in the great works of Christ. The Passover itself, of course, in their liberation from slavery. So those participating in the meal are participating in returning, if you will, to the original events, while at the same time the original event is being made present to them. In the New Testament, the memorial is transferred to a new originating event. When the church celebrates the Eucharist, we recall return and participate in Christ's Passover, his death on the cross and resurrection from the grave. The Jewish Passover was a shadow and type of the Passover in Christ. The book of Hebrews is all about this, especially in terms of the Day of Atonement. The Eucharist is a memorial of the cross and resurrection of Christ, not because it simply reminds us of it, but because it makes Christ's Passover present to us and us to it. St. Paul says, quote, The cup of blessing that we bless, speaking of the Eucharistic cup, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of one bread. In the Eucharist, we participate in the one event of Christ on the cross, his body broken, his blood shed for us. What this means then is that because the Eucharist is a memorial and sacri- as a, as a remembrance of this kind, of this participatory kind, if you will, and it, it, since it's not simply a reminder of past events, But a participation in the one great event of Christ, the Eucharist is not a re-sacrificing of Christ on the cross. There's only one sacrifice of Christ on the cross, right? And, And the Eucharist is not a redoing of this. It's not a replication of this, right? But it's a participation in it. Christ is not sacrificed for a second or third or multiple times in the Eucharist, unlike pagan sacrifices or even the sacrifices of the Old Covenant, such as the sacrifice of the Passover lamb, or the goat on the Day of Atonement, Christ sacrifices once and for all. The epistle to the Hebrews makes this abundantly clear. And here's just one instance from the book of Hebrews, but I have four others that I'd be happy to, to give you a read. Uh, the writer says, For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest enters the holy place every year with blood not of his own. For then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So there is only one sacrifice of Christ on the cross, right? There's one sacrifice and it is once for all. But if the Eucharist is not a re-sacrifice of Christ, but a participation in the one sacrifice of Christ, how are we to understand this? What does it mean to say that the Eucharist is a remembrance and a participation in the sacrifice of Christ? I think it's important, in thinking about this, to just ask what a sacrifice is. This might not be as clear to us. I mean, it's, it's actually, I mean, if you look into it, it's very interesting, and, and uh, there's a lot of different ways to come at this question. But sacrifice, of course, is something you see throughout human cultures and religions. In all places, um, I, I would, I would uh, propose, that in all places, sacrifice is seen principally as an offering and gift to God or the gods, all right? In the first instance, a sacrifice is not about destruction or immolation, that's the technical term, immolation, but rather about giving life and receiving life from God. And this is why materially speaking, and this is true in the Bible as well, a sacrifice is a sacred meal between God and man, a meal where man believes he is entering into communion with God. Either man looks upon the meal as an offering to God, or else he supposes that God is there as his table companion. Inversely, it is God who is admitting him to his own table, even to, extend where he not only, even to the extent where he not only furnishes the food, but is actually that food himself. And if we look at the sacrificial system of the old covenant, of which the sacrifice of Christ is the fulfillment, we see that his sacrifice was placed on the altar. Right? It's placed on the altar. It's then burned with fire. And then it rose to heaven. The psalmists often speak of this, right, this rising to heaven, right? And God sort of breathing it in, which is sort of consuming the sacrifice, right? Eating the sacrifice. Of course, we also know, and scripture makes this abundantly clear, God does not need these sacrifices, right? He's the one that provided the whole of it. So he doesn't need them for his own survival, but rather these acts of worship, right? But, there, but when the sacrifice is burned up, it's seen as its offering of, to God, Sometimes nothing was left over, such as in the Holocaust offerings or the offerings given on the Day of Atonement, where all was either burned up or in the Day of Atonement, some was sent away alive as a propitiation for the sins of the people. And so all, in this sense, was consumed by God. However, if something was left over, it was consumed and eaten by the priest who represented the person offering it, or it was consumed and eaten by the person himself. The Passover sacrifice is the perfect and central example of this. Think about the Passover, right? Think it just, let's just reflect upon it, right? And, and it's dynamic, which, of course, the Passover is the, the historical source for our Eucharist, right? In, a, in the Passover, the sacrificial lamb is slain. During the, the feast of the Passover, blood filled the streets of Jerusalem, and this blood was placed over the doorpost of each house, as it was at the first Passover. And then what happens? The lamb is consumed, and eaten during the Passover meal, right? So you have the sacrifice of the lamb offered to God and also eaten by the people at the Passover meal. Also, just take a minute, and this is interesting as well, just stop and think for a second about the fact that you've never eaten a meal where some living thing has not given up its life for yours, where its life has not been offered, taken and given for your life, whether plants or animals, Every meal that we have had has involved a sacrifice of some kind, if you will, a sacrifice of life. Some living thing has died, and death occurs that those participating in the meal might live from this death. In this sense, in a certain sense, every meal is like a sacrifice, right? Now, of course, the uniqueness of a sacrifice, what makes a sacrifice a sacrifice, is that it's a meal offered and shared with God, where we commune with him. But every meal, in a certain sense, involves this sacrifice of life, Right. So the point being is that every meal in a certain sense is a sacrifice, and a sacrifice sort of finds its own end within this meal of communion. Right? And if this is the case, then the sacrifice of Christ on the cross, where his body is broken and his blood is shed as the true Paschal Lamb for our sins and for the sins of the whole world, this sacrifice is not complete until it is consumed. The sacrifice of Christ on the cross. Is not complete, it is not a complete sacrifice until it is consumed, like the Passover lamb in a meal, until it is eaten as a meal of communion. The sacrifice of Christ terminates not in some theory of atonement, but in the Eucharist. This is precisely what St. Paul says to the Corinthians when warning them regarding the seriousness of the Eucharist. He writes, quote, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed for us. And what's his next line? Therefore, let us keep the feast. Christ has been sacrificed for us, therefore let us eat. (laughs) Let us keep the feast. Not the old festival of the Passover, not the old leaven, he says, but the new leaven of sincerity and truth. This new leaven that Christ is, this unleavened bread, excuse me, of sincerity and truth that Christ is. Later to the Corinthians, St. Paul will say, consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar. So you see how by eating the sacrifice, they participate in the altar, right? And then he goes on, what do I imply then that food offered to idols, and now he's talking about pagan sacrifices, is anything or that an idol is anything? No, but rather I imply what pagans sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Notice that what he's speaking of here, he's, he's, he's toggling sort of back and forth between a table and an altar, right, of the, of the, the, in terms of both the Jewish sacrificial system, the pagan sacrificial system, and he's, all of this is within the Christian Eucharist, right? That there is, in a sense, it is, it is this, uh, in the Eucharist we participate, and in, 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 we participate in that in which we sacrifice to. So for the pagans, their participation, their communion is with that which they sacrifice to. And on the one hand, it's nothing at all. There's nothing on the on the end, and yet, because it's just a simple idol. And on the other, he says, "No, in fact, it's demonic. It's a participation in the demonic." For the Jews, there was a participation, of course, in Yahweh, in communion with Him. And for Christ, I mean, for the Christians, a participation in Christ, His death, and resurrection. So clearly, from the context, the table of the Lord is also an altar like the sacrificial altars of the Jews and pagans from which they eat and drink. But ours, of course, is that of Christ, the fulfillment of all sacrifice. So I think it is, I think we can say that is the Eucharist a meal? Yes, absolutely. It is a meal. But it's also a sacrifice. Is it the Lord's Supper? Yes, absolutely. It is a supper, right? Upon a table, which is also an altar. And I know that uh, So let's just say, if the Eucharist is a sacrifice, which is also a meal, then it is Christ who is both priest and victim. This is important. Christ is the one who is both the priest and victim of this sacrifice, right? Again, the book of Hebrews says this over and over again in different ways. Christ is the one who offers the sacrifice, and he is that which is offered. Christ is the great high priest, and he offered the sacrifice of himself. And he did so once and for all, and remember that this once for all is within uh, the temple made without hand, so that it's an eternal offering. Indeed, what would it even mean to re-sacrifice a sacrifice that is eternal? No, every Eucharistic sacrifice is simply a participation in the one eternal sacrifice of Christ, where Christ is both the priest and the victim, the celebrant and the feast. And being around uh, here in this church, you may have heard someone refer to the bread of the sacrament as the host. Have you heard this term ever used, that the bread is the host? Do you know where this term—well, first time I heard it, do you know what I thought it was? Uh, I thought that the host was referring to sort of the, the banquet table of the Eucharist, if you will, and that Christ as the host was sort of hosting the banquet, right? And, and in a certain sense, this is, this is relatively true, Right? So, you know, at the table of the Lord's Supper, Christ is the host, right? However, the word host used in this context comes from the Latin hostia, which actually means sacrificial victim, right? And so this is a term that sort of is used throughout different uh, churches uh, uh, to to speak of the bread uh, which we receive uh, in the Eucharist. But then it's also important to say uh, what kind of of sacrifice is the Eucharist, right? Because if you remember the Old Testament, there are many different kinds of sacrifices, right? Um, And this is a a question, of course, that will go beyond uh, today as we're already sort of getting uh, close on time. Obviously, the death of Christ on the cross is a propitiation for our sins, and it is an atoning sacrifice, (laughs) However, it's important to remember that the Son of God exists eternally as an oblation back to the Father. Here you have to think back to our talks on um, the, the relationship, uh, on, talks on the creed, right, and the relationship of God the Father with the Son, and that the Son exists eternally before there is anything at all in a state of continual praise and oblation back to, the, back to the Father. The Father pours himself out, giving him life, generating him eternally, and the Son returns, this genera- returns in an act of love in the Holy Spirit, right? So the Son exists, if you will, eternally in an act of praise and thanksgiving. In a certain sense, in an act of sacrifice. So that when the Son becomes incarnate in Jesus Christ and offers his life for us on the cross, this eternal oblation, this eternal gift back to the Father becomes, under the reign of sin, a sacrifice unto death for the sins of the whole world. This immolation, this death, exists because of sin, that the oblation turns into destruction because of sin, that to offer oneself totally and completely under the reign of sin is to die, to give oneself up unto death. But of course, Jesus in his resurrection defeats death, so that then our oblations, even unto death, will then be brought up in his resurrection. Our liturgy refers to the Eucharist as a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving. It uses this exact language. I read it earlier. That, that our sacrifice is one of praise and thanksgiving. The word Eucharist literally means thanksgiving. It's the Greek translation of the Hebrew berakot, which can be translated also as blessing. It's interesting, the third cup, the third cup of the Passover, which is, uh, scholars think this is the cup of the Last Supper that Jesus blesses as the Eucharist, that this cup is the cup of blessing. It's the Eucharist cup, if you will, that the, that of the Passover meal which is again where we get our term Eucharist and why we think that the the sacrament of the Eucharist is a sacrifice of thanksgiving and blessing. It's important to say that this cup of blessing and thanksgiving is within the context of the Passover meal and is not extrinsic to it. So whatever thanksgiving and praise that we offer in the sacrifice of the Eucharist is not extrinsic to the sacrifice of Christ as our Passover lamb the Anglican theologian E.L. Maskell pointed out that to refer to the Eucharist as only a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving, and this is my point, that it is most definitely a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving that's within the context of Christ's whole sacrifice of his life, but to refer to it only as a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving, and not a sacrifice that participates and makes present Christ's sacrifice for us on the cross. Now, my dad, that this is, 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 is what Calvin proposes, that that to, do, to, to propose that it's only a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving ironically turns the Eucharist into a human work. I mean, think about this. How could we offer a praise of, of thanksgiving, a sacrifice to God, in any way that's apart from the sacrifice of Christ on the cross? Right? It somehow has to only be made possible and participate in the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. Otherwise, it just becomes our own work. Right? So this sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving, which the Eucharist is, is made possible by Christ's work on the cross. So, uh, now let's spend just five minutes now speaking about the sort of the grace that we receive, the benefits and grace from the Eucharist. We said that it's, it's this remembrance of Christ's work on the cross, right? And this remembrance is a participation in his work on the cross. It's not our own work, it's not a re-sacrificing, it's simply a reception and participation in what Christ has done, in this eternal sacrifice, right? And so the Eucharist is simply a participation in the one sacrifice of Christ. So what do we receive in the Eucharist? Most fundamentally, what do we receive in the Eucharist? Christ. We receive Christ himself. Jesus says, this is my body given for you, this is my blood. In the Eucharist, we receive Christ, really, truly, and substantially. Yes, we ascend to heaven to partake of the heavenly banquet, but Christ also comes down to us in the bread and the wine. He is the bread of life. Quote, this is the bread that comes down from heaven, Jesus tells us in John 6, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven, he says. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. St. Cyril of Jerusalem says, Therefore, with fullest assurance, let us partake of the body and blood of Christ. For in the figure of bread is given thee his body, and in the figure of wine his blood. That thou, by partaking of the body and blood of Christ, mightest be made the same body and same blood with him. See how we're united to Christ in the Eucharist. For thus we come to bear Christ in us, because his body and blood are diffused through our members. Thus it is that according to the blessed Peter, we become partakers in the divine nature. So in receiving the Eucharist, we receive Christ and partake of his nature. This is not to say that the Eucharist as bread and wine is not also symbolic. It is still symbolic. We're not opposing, right, the real presence of Christ and the symbolic nature of the Eucharist. It's both. The bread and wine are some, and Peter, Paul, excuse me, Paul uses the symbolism of bread to speak about the meaning of the Eucharist, talking about how the the bread is made up of these different grains and all the grains come together to make one loaf. So the church, when it receives the Eucharist, are the many grains that come together as one loaf and one body, right? And so the, the Eucharist is most definitely, the bread and the wine are symbolic, but to say that doesn't mean that Christ isn't really present, right? And there's no reason to oppose these two things, It's both symbolic of the body and blood of Christ shed for us, and it gives us this body and blood of Christ. Again, to quote St. Cyril of Jerusalem, and this is from his his, um, catechetical lectures in the 4th century. He he writes, "'Contemplate, therefore, the bread and wine not as bare elements, for they are, according to the Lord's own declaration, the body and blood of Christ. For though the sense suggests to thee, let faith establish thee, judge not the matter from taste, but from faith.'" Be fully assured without misgiving that thou hast been vouchsafed, that thou hast received the body and blood of Christ. What seems bread is not really only bread, though bread by taste, but the body of Christ. And that what seems wine is not wine, though the taste will have it so, but it is the body of Christ. And what this means is that we can receive the body and blood of Christ only in faith. That to, the, that to the, our sensible eyes, it, it's just bread and wine, right? I mean, materially speaking, it's just bread and wine, right? So the question: Are we going to be materialist about this? Is it just bread and wine, right? Or will we see that Christ Himself is present through the eyes of faith? To the eyes of faith, this bread is the bread of life. As our bodies are nourished by bread and wine, so our souls are fed by the body and blood of Christ. And so, what this means is that if we are united to Christ, who is both the great High Priest, and the lamb who was slain, the church in and through Christ then uh, receives the benefit then of, of through Christ offering this sacrifice uh, as well. Even more, the church herself being united to Christ is this sacrifice with Christ. She herself, you if you will, is offered to God as a sacrifice. And here's Augustine, right? No uh, uh, um, unknown theologian. Augustine says, The whole redeemed community, that is to say the congregation and fellowship of the saints, is offered to God as a universal sacrifice through the great high priest who offered himself in his sufferings for us, so that we may be the body of so great a head. And again, he writes, this is the sacrifice of Christians who are many making up one body in Christ. This is the sacrifice that the church continually celebrates in the sacrament of the altar." Let me say that again. This is the sacrifice which the church continually celebrates in the sacrament of the altar, a sacrament well known to the faithful where it is shown to the church that she herself is offered in the offering which she presents to God. That's St. Augustine in the City of God, Book 10. That the church herself is offered because she's united to Christ, right? It's Christ who's principally and most fundamentally offered, but because we are Christ's body, we are offered with him. This is seen actually in our liturgy When we bring forth, when 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 the ushers bring up, right the 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 offerings, right the ushers bring up the offerings, and these offerings are presented to Christ, and then with them, this in in the ancient church, these these offerings were set on the table, and the bread and wine was brought forth too. All of this was brought forth from the congregation, representing the whole of their lives, and this bread and wine with the offerings was all set on the table, and then offered to God, right? So the church is offered to God in Christ. We become the sacrifice of Christ, a sacrifice offered to God for the life of the world. St. Paul says that we're to be a living sacrifice to God, that our lives are to take the form of sacrifice. Our lives are to, in this sense, be a living Eucharist. When Christ became man, though he was in the form of God, he took the form of the servant. And Augustine says, it was this form, the form of the servant that he offered to the Father. And in this form he was offered, because it was under this form that he is the mediator, In this form, he is the priest. In this form, he is the sacrifice. And Augustine then goes on. Thus, the apostle first exhorts us to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, as the reasonable homage we owe to him, and not to be conformed to this age, but to be reformed in the newness of mind to prove what is the will of God. Then he goes on. Because we ourselves are that whole sacrifice. So the whole sacrifice of Christ includes... Our sacrifice, our, the sacri- our own sacrificial lives. In fact, if it didn't think about this, if it didn't include it, then our sacrifices would be our own work. If our sacrifice to Christ, if we weren't included in the sacrifice of Christ, then whatever sacrifice we offer to God would just simply be our own, right? But but precisely because our sacrifice, precisely because our sacrifice is part of the whole sacrifice of Christ, we can say that it is only Christ that gives and we are included in that that gift that Christ gives. Or that Christ gives in such a way as to include us. The whole sacrifice of Christ includes the sacrifice of our lives. Our lives, then, are to be an extension of the Eucharist in the world. And the Eucharist itself teaches us how to do this, how to be an offering to God in the world. Again, quoting Augustine, this book 10 of the City of God is just filled with... um, different ways to think about uh, sacrifice. And he writes, Thus Christ is both the priest himself making the offering and the oblation. This is the reality. And he intended the daily sacrifice of the church to, this, to be the sacramental symbol of this. Here he's referring to the daily morning prayer and Eucharist that we do uh, throughout the week. That Christ intended the daily sacrifice of the church to be the sacramental symbol of Christ's own offering and oblation. For the church, being the body of which he is the head, learns to offer itself through him. This is the true sacrifice. The sacrifices of the saints in earlier times were many different symbols of this. So just as the Eucharist flows out into the world through the lives, the living sacrifice of the church, so our lives then return back to God in a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving. And all this is included in the one sacrifice of Christ on the cross. It's not a re-sacrifice. It's not something that we do on our own. It's only through Christ's work on the cross, and a participation in it. This is, I think, what's so important to see, that there's no reason then to oppose sort of sacrifice to meal, right? Or, uh, or to be afraid of using this language of sacrifice when, when speaking of the Eucharist, because we're only affirming Christ's own sacrifice on our behalf, that then by His grace, we then get to participate in, offering ourselves back to God and offering ourselves as a sacrifice to the world. All right, Um I'm sure there are plenty of (laughs) things to discuss and and questions. So let me give you time at your table to do this, and then we'll come back and discuss a little bit uh, uh, together as a group. Just take maybe five minutes at your table, and then we'll do five minutes together as a group. All right, let's um, gather back for about five minutes or so, uh, hear from you guys if you guys have thoughts or questions that we can discuss. Any thoughts or questions? If not, we can just all go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So this is always perplexing when Jesus is sitting there at the table and says, This is my body. I, thought, I showed him like, as I was studying the time. Yeah. I this, but he's in two places at once. Yeah. And then and it occurred to me, well, maybe Jesus didn't stop being the eternal Jesus when he became incarnate. So right. Yeah. Right. Is that. Yeah, I mean, I think, well, it definitely, you'd, you'd want to think through the fact that Jesus never ceases to be the eternal word or ceases to be God, who then is, in a sense, in no place because he's in every place, right? And so Jesus says the eternal word doesn't cease to uphold all things at all, all times. Um, though that bread would be unique as a, a, the Eucharistic bread. So, I mean, it's, a, it's an interesting question, to which I don't have it, to be honest, a, a clear answer. And you know, did Jesus, you know, does Jesus eat the Eucharist that night? You know, is he consuming himself? Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, these are interesting sort of uh, questions to, to contemplate. Um, but I, I think you, uh, it definitely, you need to begin by thinking about the nature of the, that he never ceases to be God and the eternal word, right? And so, absolutely, he can be in more than one place. And so what, why it's also the fact that Jesus, the resurrected Jesus is in heaven, right? But also you think about the nature of the resurrection, that, that we get a new understanding of the body with the resurrection, the spiritual body, right? That, trans, that can transcend space in a certain sense, right? Walk through walls, you see. But also you know that the church is his body, right? Connected to his body. And so the body is, in, while Christ is in heaven, he's also, you know, in his body, the church, in presence of the Holy Spirit. Also in the Eucharist through the Holy Spirit as well, right? And so, um, so you get this new understanding of body with the resurrection, right? That it, that extends beyond just sort of a, a sort of simple material location, I think. Um, and again, we're we're sort of trespassing on sort of heavenly realities now—resurrection realities that are hard for us to contemplate because we're on this side, right? But you do see—I mean, it's it's crystal clear from Scripture that the Church is the body of Christ. Right, that are somehow united to him. In 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 a way, there's a, a way in which the the Eucharist then makes the Church. It's this place where we commune with with Christ most intimately, in His body. Yeah. Any other? It's okay. Did you? What so? Another hand? Right <laughs> there. Go ahead. Well, I think what I was trying to say is that it was always consumed, whether wholly by God. These were the Holocaust offerings are consumed wholly by God or consumed partly by God and partly by, you know, the one doing the offering, whether the, the priest standing in for the offer or the offer himself. So it was always consumed completely, you know, uh, whether, you know, it's consumed by God or shared with man. But it's seen as this, this then sacred meal where man communes with God, the sharing of life, Really, you know, and, and blood is in blood principally is a symbol of life. It's of course also a symbol of death, right? And so these covenant meals, right? This, this lamb would be slain, you know, and so the, this Passover is a covenant meal. And so the slain of the lamb is, is not simply a sharing in, in life of the meal, but also you sort of see the consequences of breaking the covenant, right? And so that's sort of this ominous sign as well about the consequences of breaking covenant being death and separation. And so blood has this. Again, this, it's a symbol of life, but also a symbol of, of death as well. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I missed your discussion of the Holocaust, offering. Yeah. Okay. The, the, the Holocaust that Yeah. that's simply a different, different kinds of offerings in the Jewish sacramental system where, where, where they were burned up completely. There was nothing left over. That's right, and that was intentional. As a, as a there were these, these offerings, if you will, of you of absolute totality to God. Right. Uh, yeah yes is the bread and wine an incarnation of the second of an incarnation i don't know if i'd want to use the word incarnation you know i mean uh, and so is is christ really present yes so the question is, is, it, is Christ really and truly present? In this, you find, this, the, real, the real and true presence of Christ, this is the Anglican language, to, to explain it. And, and you'll find that throughout. Whether you, different sort of views on sort of the specifics of what really and truly present mean, you'll find different, different views of that within the Anglican church. But this language of really and truly present, you'll find throughout. Um, all the way from sort of the reformed Anglican world to the more like Anglo-Catholic, Anglican world, all of them will use the language of really and truly present. So that's what I feel confident saying, say Christ is really and truly present. If you want to ask me more specifically in another place, we can talk about that. But here for this class, Christ is really and truly present, and we rece- which means we receive Christ in, in the Eucharist. Yeah. Um, great. Well, let's say a word of prayer to close and, uh, and then go into worship. So the Lord be with you. Let us pray. Father, we ask that you would um, help us to contemplate these mysteries. That's what they are. They are mysteries uh, to which you have given us just a glimpse of the depth of who you are, of the depth of your love for us, the gift of yourself for us. This is what we receive and most need is the gift of you uh, for our own life. So we ask that you... Uh, through the grace of your Son and the gift of the Holy Spirit, would receive our offering to you, that you would receive our lives uh, back to you, and that we would be an image of your Son uh, in the world, and that now we would enter into uh, worship of him, offering ourselves uh, to you as a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen.